You're listening to part two of a special episode of 2036, the podcast, recorded in front of a live audience at Emory University, with your host, Munir Megjani, featuring Carol Anderson. So your latest book, mm. The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Yes exposes the anti-blackness of the Second Amendment Mm -hmm. and the consequences for African-Americans and black citizenship and lives. How can we help Emory students begin to have meaningful dialogue about issues of race, guns, and unequal treatment under the law? I would say I'm getting ready to fall back on my old answer. Sure. Research, real research and evidence. I mean, that's, that's what led me to that book. It was seeing Philando Castile's murder. Mm. You know, so here is a legal gun owner who explains to the the police officer, I'm reaching for my ID as you have requested, but I want to let you know, according to NRA guidelines, that I have a license to carry weapon with me, but I am reaching for my ID as you have requested. And the police officer put five bullets into Philando Mm. Castile. Mm. And the NRA went virtually silent. Yeah virtually silent. And these are the folks who called federal officers after Ruby Ridge and after Waco, jackbooted, you know, jackbooted yeah. <laughs> thugs, right? And I went, silent? We're getting virtual silence? When you've got a legal gun owner who is shot dead simply for having a mm. gun? And so pundits were saying, well, do black folks have Second Amendment rights? And I went, you know, I'm a human rights professor. Right. And I went, that's one of the rights I haven't looked at. That's a great question. And I went hunting and went all the way back to the 17th century. And I started seeing these laws and this fear coming through in these laws about black people. This fear that defined them as ultimately violent, right. inherently criminal, and inherently revengeful. And that we had to keep weapons out of their hands. We had to protect the white community. And so seeing that and and tracing that all the way through to the 21st century, where I'm seeing this fear and this sense that the white community must be protected. They must have access to guns. And it it goes against, it doesn't matter whether African-Americans are enslaved whether they were free blacks, whether they were what they called denizens, Mm -hmm. which was this netherland between being a citizen or being enslaved, whether it was right after emancipation and they were freed people, whether they were Jim Crowed, or whether they were post-Obama. The legal status of African Americans did not change the way that these gun laws were deployed and what would happen, the kind of retribution that would fall down on mm. black folks for having weapons for defending themselves. Sure. And that comes from doing the research and asking the tough questions and then having to sit with it, having to sit with the fact that Patrick Henry, right? What you learn in school is Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death, right? Seeing Patrick Henry in the Constitutional Convention in Virginia where they're trying to ratify it, And he's looking at James Madison saying, oh, not today, (laughs) not today. You have put control of the militia under the federal government. We can't trust those folks in Pennsylvania and Massachusetts Mm -hmm. to send the militia in when our slaves revolt. We can't trust them and we will be left defenseless. And so hearing Patrick Henry, this lion of liberty, really advocating for the control of black people and saying that we must have in that constitution, 
something that will protect us. And that protection was the Second Amendment. So sitting in the Bill of Rights is the right to contain and control black people. So rooted in who we are. Yes. So rooted in who we are. Yes. So talking about the Bill of Rights and elections and voting, each new election cycle has seemingly gotten more and more political polarizing to such extremes that it's almost unrecognizable. Voter suppression and election and voting integrity are even starting to play more of a role and a central focus in political campaigns. In 2018, your book, One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy was published. Mm. Do you see a point where things will get better or is this a situation of things getting worse before they get better? So I'm getting ready to combine a couple of my books. Okay. (laughs) Um, In my book, White Rage, Mm -hmm. I talk about with each major advancement of African-Americans, there's this massive policy backlash. And so it looks like, whoo, we've overcome. And then there's Boom. Yep. So after after the Civil War, you know, you get Reconstruction and then you get the dismantling of Reconstruction and the rise of Jim Crow and a series of Supreme Court decisions that undermined the constitutional amendments and the laws that were designed to create citizenship, protect the citizenship of the freed people. We saw the same thing after the Great Migration, where, you know, as Isabel Wilkerson said, this was the first step that black folks took without asking permission. Mm. You know, when they fled the South and mm. were like looking for better schools, a way out of lynching. And the response was that you had cities like Jacksonville passing laws mm-hmm. that said that black people could not leave the city to look for a better job. Yeah. Reminds you of a certain Korean nation that does that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And we saw the same thing after the Brown decision. We saw the same thing after the civil rights movement that gave us the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And we saw the same thing after Obama's election, which was this massive voter suppression. And so what we're seeing is that as you have this mobilization of this broader constituency, that is engaged and believes in democracy, you get this policy backlash that says, how do we shut this thing down? In Obama's second term, we got the Shelby County v. Holder decision Mm. that basically gutted the preclearance provision of the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. So now these states that had a history of discrimination were then able to just implement these really racist laws, but to make it look clean. So they would say, this is about protecting against voter fraud. This is about ensuring election integrity. It is the same language virtually that they used in 1890 in Mississippi to implement massive disfranchisement. And that's the language we still hear today, election integrity, voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud. After Shelby County v. Holder, you had these states like Texas implemented a racist voter ID law. Mm -hmm. You had Georgia shut down over 200 polling places, the vast majority of them in black and poor communities. And it worked in 2016. Black voter turnout went down by 7%. Grassroots organizations mobilized. They mobilized something fierce. And you saw the result of that in 2018, Mm -hmm. where you had this massive turnout in a midterm. And folks were like, 
Yeah. It was like, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so then the massive turnout in 2020 in the pandemic and begin to think about all of the shenanigans that were happening during the pandemic, mm. basically gutting the ability of the post office to deliver absentee ballots during COVID-19 requiring notarized absentee ballots. I mean, if you got to go out and go find a notary, you're kind of messing up that whole thing yeah. about, you know, social distancing thing, right, right? Right. So all of those shenanigans, but people were determined because they believed in this democracy. So you had the highest turnout in presidential history, I believe, since they've been tracking it. Like over 66% of registered voters turned out. The response was not to embrace this massive turnout. You had the highest turnout in 2020 of Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. Over like 59% or so yeah. of Asian Americans turned out. Over 66% of black women turned out. I mean, this is just, whoo, folks aren't playing. The response is not to say, wow, this is great. The response is to say they stole the mm -hmm, election. Mm -hmm. They stole the election and we don't have confidence now. So what are we going to do to get confidence? How do we stop all of this voter fraud? Except they cannot document massive rampant voter fraud. But instead, they generate the lie and they keep repeating the lie over and over again to make it seem like it's substantive. And then you get this wave of voter suppression laws that looked at the ways that African-Americans and Hispanics and Asian-Americans and poor people and young people access the ballot box and said, how do we shut this mm -hmm. thing down? And so you ask, is it going to get better? It's going to get better the more we continue to push for this vibrant democracy. That if we seed and just go, Lord, it is what it is, it's always right, going right. to be, it's <laughs> never going to get better. It is this fight for this democracy that is going to make it better. You talk about the pendulum swinging in Georgia alone. A lot of folks don't know the first 22 elected senators, right, weren't allowed to vote. Their machines would be disabled. You know, so <laughs> on the surface, you would say, oh, well, Georgia elected 22 black individuals to go out and represent. And then you realize that none of them are actually able to vote because their systems are being rigged on purpose or their seats are being removed and they're making them stand for hours during session. After the Camilla massacre in mm -hmm. 1868, and you get this massive removal of black elected officials in Georgia, yeah. it's like... Dang. But when you think about it, also think about in the mid-1960s when Julian Bond ran for the House of mm. Representatives and he won and the Georgia legislature refused to swear him in. Right, right. And so they held a new election because the seat is empty. He ran again. He won again. They refused to seat him. And so you see this continued push to erase Black political power, black political influence, the voices of black voters, of, of black citizens, of American citizens, that's at its core here. Yeah. So is it going to get better? Yes, it gets better when we continue to push, when we continue to fight to make these systems work for all of us, when we continue to identify what's working and what's not working, and we just don't let the lie just sit there. And especially in Atlanta, we're so lucky, right? This term, the cradle of the civil rights, is, is used so often. 
But if we forget the tangible impacts of that, for example, Mayor Shirley Franklin, one of the first female black women mayors of a major city, was in Atlanta. Yes, she was. I also think about when Maynard Jackson, Mm -hmm. when he became mayor of Atlanta, one of the first things that he did was he realized that you had this major airport and like basically 1% or so of the contracts were assigned to African Americans Mm -hmm. in Atlanta. It was just like, okay, this is an old boy Something's system. Up. Something's wrong here. I mean, you know, as I'm looking at these numbers, this isn't working. And he, and he opened that up and began to think about when you have systems that create inherent poverty, hmm. your system is destabilized. Yeah. When you have a system that opens up opportunities so people can envision what their lives could be and they know that it's possible. Wow, you've got a system that thrives. You have a system that works. And it was thanks to Mayor Maynard Jackson that we have the international airport, right? He's really the one who built it out. He saw that dream and that possibility. And we're so grateful for that because Atlanta is who it is with the busiest airport in the nation because of him. Yeah, yeah. So bringing it home to folks at Emory, right, in relation especially to perhaps the previous question, where do you see Emory students and students nationwide fitting into that narrative? What I see in my students is this thriving, this drive Mm. to identify the issues and then become part of the solution. Mm. And so they're working on getting the expertise that they need to be able to weigh in to make a difference, to be able to understand. And so, and I see them taking on internships. I see them taking on summer jobs. I see them then moving into these positions or going to graduate school afterwards in order to get more expertise to figure out how do I become part of the solution? How do I make this world better? How do I ensure that there's not going to be another child Mm. who's living in poverty? How do I ensure that there's not going to be an- another child who, who's hungry? How do I ensure that there's going to be a space where there's healthy food in all neighborhoods and that regardless of your zip code, you get a quality education? How do I ensure that the police are really here to protect and serve? Wow. My students are asking those questions and they are doing the work. That's, that's where I see the enormous power of Emory students and of college students around who, who aren't satisfied with the conditions, but who are asking great questions and doing the heavy lifting of democracy. And I think to that point, so much of the work that we do today will be felt by the generations in the future, right? One of the biggest signs that I've seen come out of what's going on in the protest of Iran is women holding up signs saying, I scream today so women generations later don't have to. Yes. And so it's so much of that seeds that you plant today that will grow in the future. Yes, absolutely. Given that, one of your book titles is We Are Not Yet Equal, Mm -hmm. Understanding Our Racial Divide. Mm -hmm. When will that yet go away? When we have helped to transform this society, that it values all of our humanity, when we continue to refuse to give up, when we have a a larger vision 
of who we are and what we could be. And that book is actually the young adult version、mm. for White Rage. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. In part three of this special episode, the thing about America is it's an aspirational nation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, and what you see in American history is this struggle from all of these folk to make that aspiration real. That is a powerful, incredible history. It is a history that draws folks here. It is a history that has people standing in line twelve hours to vote. It is a history that has folks marching and protesting. It is a history that should be embraced. It is a way that you think about: I will be able to breathe. My babies will be able to breathe and learn and thrive. And it is that. Hope that is so powerful, and that's why we fight. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.